Part Two, Chapter One of Life in Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrea K. Life in Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part Two, Chapter One Mr. Biograph. They brought Dorothy from Alderson to Baltimore, and visited their old friends, the Meixners. One day they dropped into a movie. The picture was Lena and the Geese, a biograph film. And when Lena walked out on the screen, behold it was Gladys Smith. So Gladys had fallen. At first it was a shock, but later in the day they considered the idea of falling too, especially Dorothy. Gladys was probably getting well paid for her surrender. They went to New York presently, took rooms, and set out to find a theatrical engagement. Their hearts were set on Belasco. They knew that William J. Dean, the same who, ten years earlier, had rehearsed Little Dot so strenuously, was associated with Belasco. Dean was their white hope. They found him at the Belasco Theater. He remembered them. Who wouldn't? He took them into Mr. Belasco's private office, a weird place, full of statuary, all in white summer dress, introduced them, and left them there. Lillian and Dorothy were distinctly frightened. Each tried to propel the other in the direction of the great man. Belasco himself used to tell how each in turn got behind to push the other forward until they had backed halfway across the room. When the interview finally began, he told them he was putting on a fairy play called The Good Little Devil and that Mary Pickford and Ernest Truix were engaged for the leading roles. Neither name was familiar to them. Gladys Smith had become Mary Pickford the winter before but they had lost sight of all the Smith family. Belasco said further that he needed one more fairy, and that he would engage Lillian for the part. It was a small part, but the best he had. Lillian was delighted, Dorothy disappointed, but not discouraged. They visited other managers and some agencies. They decided to look up Gladys Smith to see what could be done in that direction. Sure enough, the telephone book had it. Biograph Company, 11 East 14th Street. Hello, hello, is this the Biograph Company? That's right, what's wanted? We'd like to speak to one of your actresses, Gladys Smith. Sorry, no such person here. But we saw her in a picture of yours, in Baltimore. What picture? Lena and the Geese. Oh, that was Mary Pickford. Oh. Oh, all right. Can she come to the telephone? So that was who she was, Gladys. So much the better. Gladys, who was now Mary, came to the telephone, and after a brief period of wild greetings and inquiries, arranged to have them come to the studio. Lillian and Dorothy at the top of the outer step at 11 East 14th Street, found themselves in a wide hall, 
confronting a great, circular, heaven-climbing stairway that ascended to the unknown. A tall man with a large, hooked nose was walking up and down, humming to himself. A boy took in their names, and presently Mary, brighter and prettier than ever under her new name, appeared and flung herself into their arms. The tall man continued walking up and down, and now added some words to the tune he was humming. She'll never bring them in, she'll never bring them in. A suggestion to Mary, who declined to take any such hint. Mr. Griffith, she said, these are my friends, Lillian and Dorothy Gish. They were on the stage for years, in child parts, just as I was. I know you'll have something for them here. David Wark Griffith, director of the Biograph Company, stopped singing, shook hands, and looked at them. Won't you come in? he said. They found themselves in quite a large room, in a violet glare of Cooper Hewitt lights, weird, ghastly lights that made living persons look as if they were dead, had been dead for some time. At one end of the room a group of people had assembled. "'You can begin right away,' Mr. Griffith said, "'as extras. We are arranging an audience. You can be part of the audience.' And so in that casual way their motion-picture career began. They sat in the audience, and then sat in it again and again and again, for it seemed that Mr. Biograph Griffith was not satisfied with just doing a thing once, and made you do it over and over until he was sure it could not be any better, even if he had to keep you at it most of the night. Lillian and Dorothy got five dollars each for that day, and felt very proud of it. Dorothy especially. She had a growing-up feeling. Five dollars a day, a real job. But, alas, early next morning Lillian took her to a department store, and when the saleslady appeared, said, "'Have you a suit that would fit this little girl?' But of course Lillian was a good deal taller, and then she was going on sixteen. That day they had their first parts as regulars. At the studio, Griffith said he would rehearse them a little. He took them upstairs and chased them here and there about a room, firing off a revolver. It seemed unusual, but did not alarm them. They had been through too much rehearsing for that. Griffith wanted to see how they reacted under fire. All right, he said when they came down, but they don't know what it's all about. The picture he was making was The Unseen Enemy. At the climax, two sisters are trying to telephone for the police, while burglars in the next room are firing at them through a stovepipe hole. Lillian and Dorothy must have given a good account of themselves for they were at the studio daily after that absorbing a new technique they had no parts to learn mr griffith stood by the cameraman and told them what to do just what to do every minute that was altogether a novelty on the stage you had to learn your part before you began if you forgot your lines a prompter helped you out but he didn't tell you what to do never shouted at you, 
like Mr. Griffith, who on the whole was kindly, even amusing. He tied red and blue hair ribbons on them to tell them apart, though the resemblance was not striking, a fleeting thing, momentary. Lillian was blue, Dorothy red, because he said she was the spunky one, would talk back. Anyway, it was easier to call out directions to blue and red. They got in three days on their first picture, and an extra night. Eighteen dollars apiece. That was riches! They lived in furnished rooms at 424 Central Park West. End of Part 2, Chapter 1 Recording by Andrea Kay